Thank you for joining Matthew Klippenstein, Kyle Field, and myself, uh, Zachary Shahan, for another week of Clean Tech Talk, uh, a weekly podcast on the latest, hottest clean tech trends, news, and our opinions on those. Today we're talking uh, about the Koch brothers' plan to kill electric cars again, and essentially people in the process, uh, Ontario EV rebates, and uh, GM's electrification plans. Kyle, you want to kick us off with Coke? Yeah, I'll jump in. So yeah, the uh, the Koch brothers have made billions of dollars um, in the petroleum transportation industry. So they basically have tankers and they run support for a lot of the oil pumping and production industry, making, I think it's over $115 billion a year that they're just raking in uh, on the this on fossil fuels, essentially. And they're starting this interesting campaign to what they're calling uh, educate the public on the benefits of petroleum-based transportation fuels. And it almost seems to me like it's a, an attempt to just make a mockery of EV advocacy programs because fossil fuels are obviously so entrenched. I mean, they're they're everywhere. They've already got a fully deployed, fully depreciated infrastructure for fueling, transportation, production, all of that. They've got a fully, I guess, committed customer base who have um, investments in tens of thousands of dollars per household in their um, internal combustion engine vehicles that are dedicated to using these petroleum products. So it's, it's, it's an interesting spin. They're saying they're trying to educate the public about how good petroleum is and how good petroleum-based transportation is. I mean, there are some benefits. I think the, the high energy density, um, the relatively low cost um, of extraction and production, when you just look at those two activities, it is a favorable technology to use. Um, I think the only piece that we take issue with is just I mean, the small downside of the negative impact to the health of every living being on the planet and the planet itself, which, I mean, I guess you could see that as a pretty minor thing if you're raking in billions of dollars and you don't care about the future. But uh, it's terrible. I mean, they're they're just really trying to capitalize on the short-term like subsidy, depending on how you look at that. It's not a financial subsidy, and that's what they're they're kind of pushing against there is they're, they're playing on the lack of education on the on the side of the public where most people don't understand like what the full subsidy is of fossil fuels and then they come out with this statement saying that they're against all subsidies and so it's just i'll leave it there and you guys beat it up a bit uh, i don't know matthew if you want to take a cut at that one uh thanks kyle yeah when i first saw the article i thought it was something to the effect of coke brothers rally typewriter manufacturers against internet or, uh, you know, Koch brothers double down on DVDs in fight against Netflix. Uh, because it is a decision to invest in yesterday's technology. It's like, you know, going out and buying a bunch of horse buggy manufacturers when the Model T is about to come out. Uh, even though it defends their interests, it's certainly the opposite of progress. It is, uh, it is something which they are trying to do to hold on to what is gradually becoming an outdated technology. It's something that they've invested billions of dollars in, sure. Uh, but this perhaps shows, that, you know, just as gravity can bend light, you know, money can distort judgment. And in this case, if they were younger, more energetic entrepreneurs, I'm sure that they would be on the forefront of solar, on wind, on battery technology. It just happens that they're sort of calcified in the older system, and so they're doing everything they can to defend it. It is kind of uh, rich that they are going after the idea that uh, they're against all subsidies, because they are, 
as as rich as they are, they are the kind of folks who are likely to be able to take advantage of those super super obscure tax loopholes, which tend to benefit hundreds to a few thousands of people in the entire United States, uh, which you know regular uh, folks like us and our listeners realistically have no chance of ever uh, capitalizing on. Uh, Zachary, since uh, you want to go forward with this uh, article, did you want to uh, add some uh, flavor as well? I definitely think it's it's an interesting story. And um, I think, I mean, it, for me, it ties in to the current elections in the U.S., which I don't know how, how far we want to go into that. But it's, uh, I mean, it's basically, like you said, these guys are, I mean, they're, they're some of the richest people in the world and they're, they're multi-billionaires largely because of dirty energy, fossil fuels, and they're basically just protecting their selfish interests. And they have a, a an Ayn Rand uh, libertarian background where they, uh, you know, su- supposedly push for no government intervention or, or of any sort. But it's, it is really ridiculous you know that they're not fighting fossil fuel subsidies <laughs> if that's their their ideological issue obviously they have a a selfish interest in not fighting those um and Elon Musk was just in a twitter discussion uh, about about this matter cuz the international monetary fund IMF uh, you know has published a report saying that governments around the world give out 5 trillion dollars in subsidies to fossil fuels approximately 5% of global gdp it's pretty pretty stunning uh staggering you know figures and sta- and just ridiculous on a on a logic point that we are subsidizing some of the richest uh, industries in the world you know they're hugely mature they have absolutely no need for subsidy and we're and we continue to subsidize them and the trillions of dollars, so it's pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, for you know, for me, it, it comes back to this sort of uh, completely illogical, uh, maybe not completely, but but very largely illogical uh, right wing of the United States right now. Which I mean, watching their primaries is both hilarious and depressing because you know they're saying things that are just completely against the the well-being of the country and the world and somehow that rings in a positive way with the with their with the people electing them so uh we're, we're definitely seeing a big shake-up in the republican base as well as the democratic base of, of voters who are just fed up with the establishment fed up with the people who have you know supposedly been in office to help them for decades and aren't really helping them but they're also, I think, for the most part, the voters are not really connecting the dots enough to see why they're not being helped, why the political machine is, is favoring the rich over the poor and the middle class, and you know why basically billionaires like the Koch brothers uh, and, and basically most billionaires these days seem to be putting a lot of money into the election because... You know, in the end, they get benefit if they get their politicians elected, and uh, it's really a, a sad state of state of the world and the, and the country. But it's also just a bit funny to me that people are so adamant to vote against their own well-being and their own benefits, uh, and vote for people funded by the Koch brothers, who are basically out to pollute as much as possible to turn U.S. cities into, you know, pollution-wreaked 
places like Beijing and to just you know keep funneling more money to the top top 0.1 percent than than to the rest of, of the country so uh yeah i think that's my final word on it for now <laughs> sure just to uh just to jump in and riff on that uh earlier comment i think it's a very valid comment of government support for mature industries really doesn't make sense even though you know many people in you know across the political spectrum will agree that young industries where the future is you know skating to where the puck will be not where it is that uh, that is generally important uh, i think that one uh, way in which people who tend to be on the left of the spectrum which is probably your hosts as well as the listeners uh, would be to point out that you know many of my right-wing friends are, were kind of irritated and upset that the u.s government bailed out general motors i think there was that joke that it were, they were called like government motors or something to that effect and uh, the reality is that the amount of support that a young and growing industry, you know, like the electric vehicle sector and the battery sector, at least with respect to electric vehicles, receive is is not even a drop in the bucket, not even a drop in a barrel compared to the ongoing benefits and subsidies, the implied and inherent subsidies that the fossil fuel sector gets. And not only is this, you know, one of the most mature industries in the world, but it's until recently, it was one of the most profitable industries in the world. And so uh, I would think that in terms of reaching out in a nonpartisan way with with this support for the uh, electric vehicle sector for renewables, uh, one can point out that by and large, you know, we also agree that mature industries should not, you know, be dependent on government for their survival or for their profits. And in this case, uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of socializing of expenses related to the fossil fuel sector, and uh, you know. As as people who would believe in the free market, perhaps uh, our uh, you know more right of center friends and neighbors and relatives would be receptive to that uh, that framing of the issue. You know, it's 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 sort of a pay your own way. We also agree that you know if uh, an auto company should be able to stand on its own, and similarly, the fossil fuel sector should be able to stand on its own while paying their fair way. Right, and I think that just speaks a lot to the the fact that we don't have a price on carbon and that we need to have a price on carbon if we're going to try to protect the future and protect future generations. The fact that they don't see the, the ability to pollute and the, I guess no tax, no price on pollution that comes directly from both the production and extraction of the uh, the petroleum, but also, I mean, the, the end use of the product. It makes it that much easier for them to just kind of open up and, and speak these generalities and have the public accept them and not be able to have not not have the data necessarily or the understanding of the whole picture to to know that it's really not accurate uh, i mean i think the comment that struck me the hardest from the article was just that the Koch brothers must not care about their grandchildren and it's it's just that they're they're not acknowledging the science of climate change they're not acknowledging the impact on future generations of the planet or even even current generations of the planet and the people that are being impacted by climate change related events today. And I think that's just what strikes me about all of these issues we talk about is that when you boil it down, electric cars make sense, solar makes sense, phasing out fossil fuels makes sense because of the eventuality, the obvious endpoint of our current trajectory. And that, uh, that I guess on an emotional level, that resonates with me, but on a logical level, it makes a lot of sense too. So I don't know. I'll just chime in one more time here then. You know, it's uh, 
it's not just about the, the people are voting against a stable climate, which is suicidal on a, on a societal scale uh, as it is, or against clean air and clean water. Clean tech also just it helps the economy. It helps our global leadership. It helps create local jobs. And at the same time, it conserves natural resources, which seems like it should be a conservative thing. Uh, and the thing is, you know, poll after poll shows that so that basically the clean energy is popular across spectrums, across across the political landscape. The large, large majority of the population uh, supports clean energy. So it's, um, it should be supported by all politicians. Unfortunately, at the top uh, leadership level of, of one party, it's basically sacrilege to 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 support clean energy. It's um, it's the best way to get yourself dethroned, probably from from a, a top position. So it's just an unfortunate situation today. Matt, but Matthew, uh, maybe let's uh, move into some positive news. Yeah, thanks, Zachary. So even though there's been, or actually, uh, regrettably, there has been some uh, backsliding in. Uh, state-level support in, in various U.S. states for uh, electric vehicles. Uh, we had a good news story in Ontario past, uh, in the past couple weeks where the, uh, the government announced a beefed-up or a, um, a more muscular uh, support program. In Canada, instead of having tax credits, we get actual point-of-purchase rebates. And the Ontario program had been one where you got five to eighty-five, five thousand dollars to eight thousand five hundred dollars uh, of a rebate uh, upon purchase. This depended on the battery size, and that's been beefed up a little bit, where the base uh, rebate is six to ten thousand dollars. You get another three thousand dollars if. The vehicle has more than 16 kilowatt hours of battery, so that's basically the Chevy Volt and up. And another $1,000 if the vehicle has five plus seats. Uh, there are a couple, there's one big exception really to this in that the support is capped at $3,000 for vehicles which start at 75000 and up, which basically means your Tesla Model S. And for vehicles with a $150,000 uh, MSRP, which I think is somewhere in the range of the starting price of the BMW i8, there's no support. And initially, you would, uh, you know, some uh, Tesla fans might be a little bit upset at this because, well, the uh, the the Tesla now only qualifies for a much smaller rebate, and I'm sure that is frustrating. Uh, the BC data did didn't uh, didn't seem to indicate that there would be a, a big effect on price there, uh, but I think the bigger uh, benefit for the electric vehicle community is, well, first, the Tesla Model Three will qualify for a whopping $14,000 rebate, or 30% of MSRP. Uh, it's capped at 30%. Uh, but also that this takes away one of the critics' biggest uh, uh, biggest uh, arguments that, oh, you know, these electric vehicle rebates, they only benefit the rich, blah, 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 blah. Which is kind of funny, because in almost all other cases where rebates or policies favor the rich, eh, electric vehicle critics tend to be supportive. <laughs> uh, at any rate... Uh, this is this is this is wonderful news. Uh, Ontario is the second biggest uh, market for electric vehicles uh, in Canada, behind Quebec. And in the second half of the article, the the link to which we'll uh, we'll have in the show notes, I just wanted to emphasize that focusing only on the rebate can lead to this this challenge where 
you know, one's critics or, or people who are maybe more conservatively or right-wing inclined might look suspiciously on this as, you know, it's not a very easy way or it's, a, it's an expensive way to reduce emissions. And if we can reframe this into a, 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 uh, a discussion on broader policies, so for example, um, most governments which have uh, electric vehicle purchase support are implementing a variety of policies, whether it's a renewable energy um, uh, a, a, a RPS, a renewable policy stand, a renewable energy policy standard, or, or a minimum requirement for renewable energy in the grid, that allows for a cheaper way of reducing emissions. Basically, if we look at this as part of an all the all, all the above strategy, then we can sort of take away one more leg of the critics, uh, you know, critics' point, because we can say, well, look, if you're doing three or four things. Uh, to reduce emissions, uh, to create a better life for the next generation, so on and so forth. Inherently, some of them are going to be more expensive, some of them are going to be less expensive. Uh, but then, by the same token, you know, if you want to uh, guard your house against burglary, you know, the most cost-efficient way is to buy a five-dollar sticker, which says, you know, guarded by XYZ Corporation. But no one who actually cares about guarding their house from burglary is only ever going to get that cost-effective sticker. They're going to upgrade their locks. They'll maybe do a, a home monitoring system. And so if we can reframe the discussion in, yeah, it's a bit more expensive than other methods, but it's part of an all-of-the-above strategy, and it's all-of-the-above strategies that tend to work to get real results as opposed to magic bullet uh, policies. Uh, Zachary, I, you might be able to give a different perspective on this. Or a, or a more complementary perspective, seeing as I'm kind of um, holed up in the in the Canadian lens of the world. Uh, did you want to give uh, maybe an, an international uh, perspective from uh, what you've seen? Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, I I don't think I have a lot to add. I, bas basically, uh, on the international perspective, we've covered a a, co a number of different studies about what's effective, and I mean, really strong financial incentives is about as good as it gets. Um, that really money talks. Um, however, we've, we've also seen studies showing the access to HOV lanes, carpool lanes, bus lanes can have a very strong effect. Sometimes that's even the strongest incentive according to some uh, to EV owners in, in some countries like Norway um, and places. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that's, uh, that's, that's really the key, you know, financial incentives and an array of other incentives that make life more uh, life easier, more convenient. Also, I saw a presentation a couple of years ago at Bar EV EVS 27 in Barcelona, where the head of uh, Nissan Europe made the case that the biggest factor that was that was making Norway the world leader was simply awareness that um, all of these things together, as well as uh, actually decades of of work, you know, around, you know, highlighting the benefits of electric cars and moving towards electric cars. All of that together created a, a consumer awareness that is really what was making Norway the, the standout country. And at that point, they were getting like 14% or 13% or something if new car sales were going to electric cars. And since then, I mean, they, the country has basically followed the, the S-curve, the, the new disruptive, innovative technology adoption curve, uh, and they, they're now, it's about 25% of, of new car sales are, are electric cars. 
So I'm think I think it's basically yeah the the more things you can do the better and the the more you can just basically get people into electric cars and experiencing them and raising their awareness of them uh, is what's really important. Um, but if you have to like pick one, I mean it's basically these these straight financial incentives that are so attractive, uh, and it's really yeah it's really exciting and interesting to hear about the Tesla you know what the Tesla Model Three would end up. Uh, it would end up being very affordable. I mean, it's gonna. It would be hard to imagine someone choosing another car of any type over the Model Three with those incentives on the table. Kyle, you have uh, more thoughts? Yeah, for sure. I think about getting people talking and getting people interested and educating people on the car. I think that really speaks to the money for me. I mean, because when you talk about like a Tesla, for instance, they're like, "Wow, it must be expensive." But then you can talk about the financial incentives that you got and how you're kind of getting part of the car for free and the government's giving you money. It feels like people are winning the lottery. I think when you talk about a $10,000 or in this case, like a, a $14,000 plus incentive, I mean, that's, that's a huge thing that's going to get people talking. And I think like we, you guys have both made the case for the model three, so I won't, I won't beat it up anymore, but I mean, it's, it really lowers the bar on on getting folks into those cars. The Chevy Bolt is also going to be out this year, so people will be able to take advantage of that sooner rather than later. I like the support for the plug-in hybrids with this plan as well and how it's kind of tiered up uh, from those smaller battery vehicles, the smaller seating in the vehicles, all the way up to the full-size, full-battery, full-range vehicle at, at $14,000. I mean, it, it's great to see Ontario stepping up and really taking a, an aggressive approach towards towards advocating EVs. And uh, I think it's efforts like this that'll really catalyze uh, the broad population, the broad-based population in, in many of these countries, um, getting educated, learning about EVs, installing the infrastructure, and ultimately um, driving that S-curve adoption rate that we really need to, want to, and are looking for, and even have seen in, in countries like Norway, like you said, Zach. Uh, the missing piece for me is public charging. Uh, we've beat that one up quite a bit as well. We talked about supercharging and how that's just extremely critical. Um, I think that the next step that I don't see a lot of uh, public agencies, um, incentives, and even uh, and maybe especially auto manufacturers talking about is the, the level four or 150 kilowatt and greater charging speeds. And that's really where we need to go. I think the cars are getting there. Uh, some of the public charging is deployed, home charging is there, but we really don't have the um, fast charging that we need. That's a fun. That's sort of a funny, uh, a funny issue for me because we, we have seen a study from Simon Fraser University and other studies that have shown that EV charging is actually not so not the most critical factor to stimulating electric car sales growth. Um, even though that's what a lot of governments focus on. But it's it's basically like, uh, I don't know, I feel like we're at the stage of the electric car market where you can't, I mean, you just can't come to such conclusions because uh, to get people in the cars, they might not be the most important thing. But as, as early adopters like you, <laughs> my mom, you know, who have driven Nissan Leafs um, and other short-range electric cars know, it, it becomes quite a handicap and quite a challenge to get around uh, with not enough charging stations and also with charging stations that just aren't fast enough. Um, so I, I, I agree. I think from surveys we've done of EV owners and really educated EV potential buyers, 
Um, the, the availability of super fast charging seems critical, uh, as well as, you know, just having charging stations where you need them in general. Um, but yeah, uh, Matthew, you have more thoughts? Uh, yeah, I uh, from that SFU study, I think the biggest two factors, I'm just working from memory here, we can provide a link in the show notes, I think the two biggest factors were uh, the vehicle type that people wanted. You know, a lot of people buy trucks, and so you can't really get to the bigger market shares until you have a plug-in for every person purpose, basically. And the other was availability of charging at home, uh, because despite... Uh, the situation in many parts of the United States where the single-family dwelling with a garage is kind of the standard, uh, in Canada at least, our cities tend to be a bit more dense and therefore more multi-unit housing and therefore people aren't as likely to be able to just install a charger on their own. You know, Hopefully they have good stratas or good councils for their buildings and so they can arrange that. That's certainly what we'll be... Uh, attempting to do as we move into a new place in March, uh, but the availability or the assurance of being able to plug in at home would be one big factor which suddenly opens up a big segment of consumers to, hey, this is an option for me, as opposed to, oh, I'm not so sure if I can do it at home and therefore I'll have to stick with another gas guzzler. Uh, now, Kyle, you had a an interesting uh, uh, third link that you wanted to uh, discuss relating to GM. You'd mentioned the Bolt there. Oh, be- sorry. Be- before we jump on that, just uh, really relevant to what you just talked about. Uh, when I visited Amsterdam uh, last last year, doing a clean tech tour there and semi vacation, um, I found out you know in in that city, which is one of the top three, I think, cities per capita for electric car sales. Um, I mean, per per new car sale, I guess. Um, they have a system, you know, most people there, like a lot of Europe, live, they don't have their own garages. They live in multi-family buildings with um, on-street parking, maybe parking connected to the development. Um, but the system in Amsterdam there is basically anyone can request an electric car charging station on their street, on any street, and basically within a couple months or so, uh, even less, I think, um, the city will install one free of charge. So basically, you know, the city is saying, as people want electric cars, we will install the charging stations. There is a charge to use these stations. They're not free um, for people to use, but uh, it seems to be working very well. And basically, you know, in many locations, I saw these on-street charging stations with a handful of electric cars in the vicinity. So it was clearly, I think... um, people, you know, requesting them be put in when they needed them. And also, I think they, they were stimulating the, the sales of other electric cars as people saw them there and talked to their neighbors. So I think it's a policy, basically, that any city should really adopt, you know, where they where they will install charging stations if citizens request them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen that really elsewhere. So, <laughs> so I don't know how, how much it would take off, but... Uh, yeah, so so jumping into GM, uh, Kyle, take us away. Yeah, I think for that charging um, setup in Amsterdam, I mean, that, that makes too much sense, and it's way too simple and straightforward for us to ever implement that in the States, but um, I like the idea myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the final story we were going to dig into um, was a, a GM article, and it really branched out from the single article on kind of GM renaming their GM powertrain unit, which is really focused on internal combustion engines, 
um, into the, the GM Global Propulsion System. So it's kind of making it a more androgynous name, opening it up to battery electric vehicles, specifically fuel cell vehicles. And that's what the article dug into that we'll have linked in the notes. This article, it was really just saying that GM is, is still partnering with Honda to develop fuel cells. They're really pushing forward with that. And I, I think it really speaks to the fact that battery electric vehicles are the primary, the most attractive option today to get off of fossil fuels. Hydrogen is extremely unattractive today, uh, which is what we use in fuel cell vehicles, uh, because it's just really inefficient as far as getting the energy into hydrogen format. So whether it's electrolysis or some other way, uh, the majority of that electricity is sourced from uh, fossil fuels, uh, primarily natural gas. Uh, and then it's also inefficient getting the energy back out again. So from the actual fuel cell where the hydrogen goes through the chemical pr conversion process, the energy is released back into electricity. So I think today they're inefficient, they're unattractive. But the fact that GM, Honda, Toyota, and others are still investing in them, and possibly at significant levels, I don't. we don't have the direct budget numbers for what they're putting into fuel cells and investments in these partnerships, but... I think at the rate we've seen technology evolve with batteries, with solar, uh, even with hydrogen and um, fuel cells to a, a lesser extent, I think there's a lot of potential with fuel cell vehicles for the future, but it still feels like we are, I would say, two decades off uh, from those even having a chance of being where battery electrics are today. Uh, but having said that, the, the transition that we're making today to battery electric vehicles will support the migration of the eventual possible migration to fuel cell vehicles in the future. So I thought this is a really neat article that kind of exposed some of what GM is doing. There wasn't a whole lot of new detail there. Uh, there's a partnership with the military, but I, I think there's a lot of potential with fuel cell vehicles and I'm still excited about where they might go in the future. I mean, at the same time, uh, battery electric vehicles could have a revolution in battery technology and we're seeing those every day. Like there was a, an article this week on um, using organic matter like apple peels to create a battery that um, would come in at a lower cost and have a lower impact, specifically not using cobalt, uh, which is one of the key components in most lithium-ion battery systems today. So I, I, think, I think it's neat to see kind of parallel progress in, in fuel cells and the work GM's doing there. Jump in as a guy who has uh, about 15 years of uh, fuel cell experience here. And... GM's move doesn't surprise me because GM has a very wide product range and in all likelihood, I'm not entirely sure of this, GM will make some uh, of the larger trucks which do trucking and other long distance travel. Most recently, even Daimler CEO uh, uh, Dieter Zich, I think it is, had uh, come out indicating that uh, he thought that you know, realistically electric vehicles would be dominant, although there's probably still uh, some room for fuel cells uh, in in the market overall. Uh, that's similar to my own opinion in that the advantages that the batteries provide not needing much additional infrastructure, you're, you're only talking about the last mile, as it were, the, the, the plug at home, broadly speaking, do and the added efficiency in terms of the uh, uh, electric uh, electric efficiency are humongous advantages. Uh, there is no hydrogen uh, refueling network. I could see that for fuel cell vehicles, 
trucking and perhaps the intercity buses might be an excellent uh, target market because those would require batteries which are just so massive that in the absence of putting you know battery swapping stations and there you have to worry about battery uh, inventories and and this and that I could imagine that those would be areas where fuel cells would be able to take advantage of their strengths in terms of being zero emission and uh, people being able to carry just enormous amounts of uh, of energy in the compressed gases on board or liquefied gases even. But for your regular passenger vehicle or your inter, uh, intra-city bus, your within-city bus, just don't see the uh, the advantage going to them. I, it's, uh, it, it seems pretty clear to me that the uh, battery electric vehicle or the plug-in hybrid vehicle is where the advantage lies. Perhaps one way of uh, expressing this is that way back in 1997, Ballard Power Systems, a company which uh, Daimler owned about a third of uh, at the time, had uh, sent a few buses to a fuel cell buses to the Chicago Transit Authority. And remember, 1997, that's like 19 years ago. And since then, even though the, uh, the fuel cell buses were very experimental at the time, uh, they had just gobs of platinum in them, since then, I don't think the Transit Authority in Chicago has actually purchased any. Uh, but meanwhile, there's been a story just on Clean Technic the past couple of days indicating that after the Transit Authority had taken on some electric buses uh, a couple of years back, they're considering purchasing another 27. And at that stage, I, I kind of think that with the, uh, with the fuel cell sector, the, the best uh, lesson or the best takeaway is something that Steve Jobs indicated to the Apple faithful back in about 96, 97 when he came back on board and he said, you know, the, the desktop wars are over, you know, Microsoft won. Let's get over that and let's focus on uh, something else. Let's focus on, on the next thing coming along. And I do think that the, you know, there is a role for fuel cells in the uh, a future zero emission transportation system, but tough to see them making all that much headway in the passenger car market where all the dominoes, all the cards are stacked up uh, in the electric vehicle's favor. GM, I would imagine, uh, would be able to make this title transition for their group just to indicate that, or just to just in, in light of the fact that they don't just sell passenger vehicles. Uh, Zachary, I know uh, you've uh, done a lot of analysis on uh, the fuel cells and electric vehicles, fuel cells and battery vehicle question over the years. Yeah, I actually was was uh, going to focus on the battery electric vehicle stuff, not the fuel cell stuff. But um, but yeah, since you bring it up, I mean, uh, I think you laid out the fuel cell fuel cell issues pretty well, and and you know it better than either of us. Um, but I do always always love uh, Joe Rom's Joe Rom's take on it. Um, for anyone who's not aware, Joe was under Secretary of Assistant Secretary of, uh, sorry, Acting Assistant Secretary of Energy for Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy in 1997, when he oversaw one billion dollars in R&D demonstration and deployment of low carbon technology, and he's he's been extremely critical of um, of hydrogen of the case for hydrogen fuel cells, um, which you know he was funding at that time. Uh, and he's highlighted seven big barriers to hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicle adoption that, I mean, it looks really challenging to overcome. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I don't know. There's not much more to say on that for me right now. It's, I, I'm not a big fan, obviously. Uh, I just don't think that, that they have a viable path forward. They're not really green. Uh, a Prius today is already greener than uh, a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle uh, of comparable, you know, um, 
specs. So, but but it's uh, I mean it's really exciting to hear that half of GM's eight thousand six hundred designers and engineers are now working on electric and alternative power systems. I think I think that's the the huge story. Um, it's a real challenge for these automakers to basically cannibalize their their own markets to, with new technolo- technologies. And I mean we've we've basically I mean their their whole competitive advantage their 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 reason for being leaders is based on their knowledge and IP and uh, and connections regarding the internal combustion engine. So so to transition to electric vehicles is a huge challenge for them. So uh, I think it's really admirable the extent to which GM and a couple of others like uh, BMW and Nissan are are trying to be leaders. I, th- I think in this market and are really trying to to make it through such a transition uh, without losing and hopefully will even gaining market share. Uh, so I think it's exciting. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the bolt is definitely to me the loudest message from GM that they believe battery electric vehicles are the, the future. I think one caveat to the, the statement about half of their engineers working on alternate propulsion is like they, they didn't really quantify that. So that could have been, well, they, they showed up at the bolt event or maybe, I, I don't know. It, those nebulous statements or they're, they're making those kind of broad brush strokes uh, with the big numbers like that. They're, they're tough to interpret, but I mean, I, I think the loudest statement is the fact that they delivered the bolt or at least they're, they've got the bolt prototype. They've got the bolt production version finalized and they're, they're targeting to release that on a pace that just blows most every other car and, and the pace that they've been on to de- deliver those um, out of the water. So that's really exciting. and I think I'll leave it at that for, for me. Yeah, I guess perhaps I'll just add that uh, in terms of GM's stats on their drivetrain and engineering teams, uh, it doesn't surprise me actually that they would have about half their team working on that because there's a lot more to uh, the drivetrain and the uh, related components than uh, than one would ordinarily think. You know, GM would ordinarily have a lot of people working on the uh, combustion drivetrain uh, material as well, and all of that is independent of fuel cell versus battery. Uh, that's basically however you get the electric fr- electricity from. It's agnostic. Uh, then how do we convert that into forward motion? How do we generate you know software algorithms and so on and so forth to maximize regenerative braking or other par- characteristics that they'd like? Modeling what kind of a motor size that they might uh, desire ultimately. So it it isn't surprising actually that they would have that larger proportion working on electric drivetrains. Uh, with the with the combustion drivetrains, I mean, it's very mature. You really don't need quite as many people to do the, the the larger improvements and opportunities that you have on the electric side. If your if your technology, your your mechanical drivetrain for combustion vehicles is on the order of a hundred years old, you can still make improvements, but they're just not they're not going to be percentage wise where your big wins are. Thank you both for another great week of clean tech talk. Uh, check in next week to get your electric fix.